Right, imagine I've done an intro, and I've done a lot of chat, and I always end it with, without further ado, and I say, Mike, welcome to the show, and then we say hello. So I've done the intro, we say, without further ado, Mike, welcome to the RAG podcast. Thank you, Sean. Pleasure to be here. Straight off a plane from Dubai <laughs> into the show. Yeah, absolutely. Straight back into uh, into the firing line. But no, it was a nice, a nice week away. When did you get back? Degrees. I got back on Saturday night and then um yeah, I caught food poisoning Saturday night. So just getting back to back to full strength, but been you, looking forward you've to You've been it. away been on holiday, come back, get food poisoning on your return. Or was it yeah, from the trip? No, no, on my return, Saturday night takeaway. Oh <laughs> no, what did what was it? Chicken or something? There was uh, there's a <laughs> Boring, isn't it? Thai place in Altringham that that's yeah. uh, now a street van. So yeah, just don't go to a street van. That's the lesson. <laughs> God, I'm dying. I'm I'm so you're you're dying of food poisoning. I'm currently sat in my new house because I've moved. I moved last week, but I've officially moved my office yesterday. So I've got dust rising. I can feel it in my nose. So if I'm sneezing, it's not. I'm not ill. I'm, I'm just uh, <laughs> I'm just dealing with that. Um, Mike, thanks for coming on the show. Um, I've done a little introduction there, but. Could you do me a favour? For anyone who's listening now, just tell us who you are today and we'll, we'll go back. So I don't want the story. Just what, who you are and what you do right now. Okay, no problem. Um, so, yeah, I'm Mike Lee. I am currently still servicing the, the recruitment sector, um, but I've naturally moved into the property market after right. 15 years of... Um, yeah, 15 years of working with recruiters, recruitment agencies, and contract workers. But yeah, right. a new a new version of me now. Right. So you're this is a bit different. I normally recruit only interview recruitment owners. This time I've recruited you're not a recruitment owner, but you are a business owner who scaled and exited a, a payroll solution effectively to the recruitment sector. Yeah. Um, and still work with us now. So I thought there'd be still loads of value in that. It'd be slightly different as well. People might think, well, you might learn stuff from this that's different from a traditional recruitment firm. So you you started in the payroll sector, a company called yep. Paystream, locally to home in 2000 and, when was that, 2007? 2007, yeah, 2007. So that's what, what how did you get into that? I went to uni for six months and as everybody does, falls into a course you don't really want to do, spends a lot of time drinking, very minimal time yep. at uni. That six months me, in, yeah. I'm like, yeah, like most of us, probably a lot of people that went to uni and ended up in recruitment. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, left after six months, thought it's just not for me. I need to start making some money. Um, Where were you? And were you at Manchester Uni or? I went to Leeds. I went to Leeds. Right. Uh, Leeds Met. I'm not good enough for Leeds Uni. Leeds Met. And then, yeah, a job came up at a company called Paystream, who a number of the listeners will know, one of the biggest uh, service providers in the marketplace. Started there without really understanding what the market was. First job. Um, what was that like, though, in terms of? actually quitting Leeds and moving back to Manchester how, how did you that must have been quite a tough moment to yeah well, I was I was always back. to be fair a lot of our mates were at uni there anyway so we didn't make any new friends at uni because yeah. a lot of my yeah. mates were at were at Leeds uni so I spent a lot of time on their sofa uh, yeah. very little time in my halls so it was the right it was the right time to come back I was I was wasting time um, wasting time there and I am a little bit of a a bit of a homebird I love Manchester um very kind of loyal to the city, spent some time in London later on in the career, but came straight back to Manchester. So it, it always feels like the right place for me. And right. yeah, just 
didn't, we'll talk about purpose in this episode, I'm sure, but didn't really feel like I had a purpose at the time. So needed to get into get into work and start making some money. It's not been a bum. Yeah, I mean, I had a similar, I went to Sheffield from Manchester and I'm, I literally remember the first three people I saw in my halls of residence, I went to college with and I was yeah. like, what the fuck? So it's just yeah, Leeds, exactly. and Sheff- Leeds and Sheffield is where everyone goes, right? Um, I, had, I had a similar experience but I didn't quit. Like the thought of leaving and going home, I was just like, nah, not, not for me. I, I blagged my way onto a different course. I did three years of the same shite of not doing any work and enjoying it. And it worked out for me, but I, I you know, sounds like you had a bit more get up and go in terms of finding a job. I didn't want to do that. <laughs> yeah. There was, there was one defining moment. I went in, I had a good pal who was doing computer sciences and he was trying to make this plane fly and take it off the runway. And I went and sat next to me, couldn't get it to move. And we looked at each other and were like, let's get out of here. And that, that was literally yeah. the moment he closed his laptop. We got in the car and we drove back to Manchester. And that was the wow. end of the evening experience. Wow. Um, oh, I like it. So, so you join a pay. What, what were you actually doing just in sales? Or? Yeah, just in, in new business. So uh, at the time, 2007, umbrella payroll was a very different world than it is today. It's been highly legislated since, but... Yeah, a number of different solutions that contractors could take, still engaging with the recruitment agencies to kind of get, get the business, but then signing up the contractors. Um, and as I say, Paystream were, were one of the biggest provider, probably the biggest provider at the time. They are now lasted about a year before a good friend of mine approached me and uh, not from the umbrella world, wanted to set up an umbrella company. He was from a debt management background. Um mm. And kind of put his trust in me at a very young age. I was I was nineteen and said, can yeah, you come and set, yeah, yeah can, can you come and set this business up for me and with us? So there was the the two founders there and me sat in an office. Um, what did you know at nineteen though? Having done one year <laughs> in a company, like very very little, but I had to learn very quickly on the job. So I knew how to sign the contractors up. I knew how to engage with recruitment agencies. I knew a little bit about the legislation. I probably knew enough to get them off off the ground. One of the guys was a chartered accountant anyway, so yeah. he had the, the tax and, and, and business acumen, but didn't have the understanding of, of, of that space. What was um, it? I mean, I remember Brookson used to ring us and we ended up doing a bit of work with them because I was a contract recruiter, right? And um, <clears throat> it, it seemed like a pretty easy gig. They used to just ring us up, deliver donuts, and shit, yeah. honestly, it was the guy called Lee Callan, if you're listening, good lad from Warrington, <laughs> you probably know him. And he, yeah. he used to turn up, come all the way out of London, maybe take us for lunch or just buy us donuts and shit. And then I I used to also get about £300 worth of vouchers I could spend in in Westfield every time I yeah. passed someone on. Yeah, so I was yeah. like, if I'm doing four or five contract deals a month and some of them are not existing contractors, they're, they're going from perm, I'm getting an extra three to a thousand pound if I'm passing these guys. I mean, it was literally, I loved it. It was brilliant. It seemed an easy gig for him to be honest. To be honest, mate, that, yeah. What, what's that? 15, 16 years ago. Um, that was, that was the approach for, for a lot of companies. Someone tell you they never did it, but that was the approach for everyone. Have you got a contractor? What can I pay you? Let's get them in and looked after. And yeah, yeah as, as a 19 year old who kind of thrived on social interactions. It was the perfect sector for me to deal with because recruiters are personable, like a bit of fun. Yeah. As long as they liked you and you provided a good service, you'd get the business. Um, mm. And legislation wasn't as as tight as it is now. So yeah, that was part of it. The donut drops. Um, I've always, I mean, I think this industry's kept Krispy Kreme going, but 
yeah, never a big fan. It was it was always nights out. It was just nights yeah. out. And from yeah, nineteen to yeah, my, my late twenties, spent a lot of time in bars with recruiters, which was great. I bet it was great. I bet it was it great. Was, yeah, absolutely class. So go on. So you're, so you're nineteen. You go into this new business, and what? Tell us what happened. Like, what was the initial trajectory like? Um, initial tra- trajectory was was good after a very short stint. I went traveling for a couple of months, just uh, that was um, at the very start of the business came back. And then from there, yeah, we grew that company to 60 staff in four or five years, about 5,000 contractors they were looking after. Um, yeah, really, really good journey, good people. A number of them still work kind of within that business. That's umbrella.co.uk. Um, still going, still, still a player in the market. And just some solid relationships around me with with big recruitment agencies that would naturally follow me into um in, into the next phase of the journey. So but you were a founding you were a founding member, really. Like you were one of the first one of the first members of staff. Um, became sales director quite quickly after. So I was on the board at kind of twenty one, twenty two, um, and then helped kind of uh, grow that company out. They brought some key members of staff in around around me um, in more of an operational finance. Um, sense and then yeah i stayed there until 2000 end of 2013 so five or six years with that business brilliant time earned a fortune as a young lad um and i had a great time along the way and then the opportunity came to to kind of start my own start my own group start my own business were you not an equity player in that original business no there was an option but it was never exercised so there was an option there but didn't have um shareholding at the time as uh, that I left and everybody gets this don't they? it's the start of your journey of, of making other people money and starting to make yourself real money so you know at, at 19 20 21 I'm earning 150 grand and I'm thinking this is unbelievable but I was billing three million quid a year on my own in you know wow. in, in GP for the business and I thought right I can I can do this I can go and do this on my own so took what, yeah, the, what sort of margins I mean GP what sort of Margins, Margin, payroll, margins were, were great back then. We'd be making yeah. 25 quid a timesheet plus right. on top from all the expenses that, that umbrellas could, could obviously process. So you, right. you'd get the value. So yeah, we're making making good good money. How good many contracts did you did you need to have to have about three million? I think I had about 1,300, 1,400 contractors under my own name. And how many recruiters Which, would you? How many recruiters were you dealing with to get to that? Because they would be part of it, wouldn't they? Yeah, recruiters with a with the main lead source, probably a hundred agencies that I would, would be looking after. And, you know, each agency there might be a, a, a small business with two or three recruiters. You might be looking after um, a Michael Page, a Walters, or a Morgan Hunt, who'd be giving you 40, 50 joiners a week. So yeah, a number of big big players in there and it was it was you, certain... you can't know all them contractors like it's impossible you might sign them up but you can yeah. you're the guy who's gonna get to know them all are you? no wouldn't wouldn't know the contractors but would absolutely know every referring consultant and kind of made it my business to to know every consultant know about them and i think in our it's very similar to recruitment you know you need to know your candidates you need to know your clients but we were providing a, a service it was a personal service from in terms of that relationship management piece so i made it my my absolute goal to understand everything about that recruiter that I was working with so that it became more of a personal relationship. And, you know, you'd get invited to, to weddings, to nights out, to football games with them, to their own football matches. And that's when, you know, you kind of cracked it. 
when they're inviting yeah. you to those kind of things because they had to trust you. They had to um, know that you're going to do a good job. You know, a contractor is a recruiter's lifeblood, isn't it? If you mess up, their billions go, contractor walks off site, everything goes to shit. So, yeah, I made it my um, my absolute goal. And that's where the nights out came from to just get to know everyone. We were literally out all the time. It was brilliant. It sounds it. So, so then you get this opportunity to go and launch your own company. How yeah, that so um, my previous boss at Paystream, a lad called Matt Tyson, who I think you've spoken to recently. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so yeah, Matt had sold his company and was looking for kind of the next move. We started talking. We both got on really well when we worked together previously. We both gone and done well. Matt sold. I was ready for, for the next chapter. He's a city fan, right? He's a good lad. He's a, he's a blue, which is... He's, he's probably a good one, lad. He's a good lad. One of his downfalls. Really, really good lad. We've, we put those differences to the side. <laughs> Red, he's a blue. Um, yeah. And, yeah, we, we set up our first company in 2014, a company called Walker Smith Global. Um, there was nothing global about us. It was all UK. It was umbrella, CIS, accountancy. What we thought, we'll stick a little global on the end because one day... We will end yeah, up cool. an international offer, and it gives you that that vision. Um, so yeah, we started first office, three of us in in Manchester in King Street. Um, we actually started with another investor, so we were invested mm-hmm. in by Hamilton Bradshaw. So a yeah, number of people, James Carr, James Carr, and the old HB guys. Um, that didn't go the way we thought it might have done. It was a 50-50 split. We just didn't quite get the value out of that relationship. So one of their investment directors who was looking after us at the time bought back that shareholding. We bought back a little bit and he came on full time. So then there was there was three of us, myself, Matt so he left. He left them and joined left them. Actually, came on full time with us. Yeah, came on um, after about a year, a guy called Stephen Mix. And then it was... Yeah, what, it was what do you have to do in that? So well, obviously this is a different conversation. What sort of things do you have to do to, to get a payroll company ready for scale? Because... It sounds like each one you grow pretty fast, like quite fast compared to a real recruitment firm. They can grow quickly. Yeah, they can grow quickly. So it is a service business. Your operations is key. You need to make sure you've got the right system, the right operators, the right people in place. Customer service, because it is a services business, is vital. And I think a lot of providers in our space can overlook it. They can see contracts as a bit of a commodity. I've probably talked about numbers of contractors and GP and stuff, but what you've got to remember is each contractor is an individual whose money you're taking care of. So mm. that customer service element is, is absolutely critical. So you've got, you need a payroll function, you need a customer service function, and then you need a sales function to go out and build mm. the relationships with a strong kind of eye on the finances in the background because it's very, very cash rich, cash heavy. A lot of cash coming in, a lot of cash going out. So well, to get, you- well, I'm just thinking, to get something set up, you need... You need a sales guy, right? You need someone like you who's going to go out and do the the, the, the front office. Yeah. You need, you need a system. Yeah. And, and, and a payroll system. And a payroll system. And then you what need someone you to need? speak to the contractors. So a customer right. service person. So you, we started with three people. Did you split the three of you up doing those three jobs? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, you have to get your hands dirty a little bit. So I'd still, yeah. when we set it up, I'd still speak to contractors myself. But if you split it into sales, which is agency relationship contractors, Payroll, which is paying the people, and then customer service, which is actually speaking to the contractors. So three people to set the business up. Who did up. each of them? So you um, did the sales. I did the sales. Chap called Liam Canerney, who'd worked with me previously, did the the payroll and customer care. And right. then we had, um, yeah, Matt, 
who was Matt kind of operations and people. So we were getting our hands dirty, don't get me wrong. We were, we were grafting and doing yeah. a little bit of everything. And then you just plug and fill those teams as, as you grow and, and scale quite quickly. So yeah, that was that was the first business of what would become the worker group. So that was that was business number one, which was Walker Smith Global. Right. Um, fast forward. So throughout that journey, we um, acquired six companies. So we always had a vision of buying in expertise. So we would buy in companies that we didn't have the knowledge in, but still were able to service the recruitment sector. So when I talked about the global, we wanted to do international payroll, but we didn't know what to do. So we bought an international payroll company, plugged them into the group. We wanted scale. So we bought a few more umbrellas just for volume. And we wanted a really solid accountancy offering. So we went and bought an accountancy provider, contractor accountancy provider in London. So just one second, Mike, I'll, we'll edit this, but just don't bang the table or whatever it is in front because it's going to keep, it, it's on the audio. Okay. So watch your hands. If you're moving your hands, it's fine. Just don't whack the table because every time it's like, man, in the order. Um, okay. We'll edit this bit out. Let's right. go back to this question. So you, you, we'll go to the growth bit in a minute, but like I'm, okay. I'm interested in that foundational Walker, Glo Walker Smith Global. Like, Tell us that journey. Before you think about acquisitions, how did that linear growth look over the, over the, the time you were just Walker Smith Global? Like what, year on year, how did it, how did it grow? So year and year, you're always looking at, at contractor volume. So how many contractors are you paying? Um, it's really simple business, really, isn't it? Really like, simple business. Yeah. Each contractor generate, generates you a timesheet value. So the more contractors you're paying, the more timesheet um, margin you're taking. So first, first board meeting, I remember we did 80 quid GP, but we'd spent 72 grand in the month. And we're like, shit. This is this is this is a problem. Yeah. Um, we then landed a contract uh, with a construction agency for a hundred workers. So we were off and right. running. Hundred workers being paid, and we had a target on the board to get to um, five hundred workers within kind of six months. That that was the target. If we get to five hundred workers, we can plug the teams. That's when you start to start to grow. Um, we did that. Next target then becomes a thousand. So a thousand contractors within the business within kind of 18 months, two years was, was the focus. We did that by achieving 700 ourselves and then buying in 300. So we, we bought right. a small, so we acquired an umbrella um, and plugged that gap with, with an acquisition. So you just milestone it very similar to a contract recruit. You know, you look at how many runners have you got out? What does that equate to in, in GP or RFI? Um, very similar to an umbrella business is based on, on volume of timesheets and that will churn out a number. It does sound, it, I can say it sounds incredibly straightforward. Like I don't think people, that, if you think about what goes into a recruiter to get to the point of being a good quality contract recruiter, like there's so much training involved. Yeah. Cause you think about it, they've got to do all that work to get the job and fill the job, which is the bit that you don't have to worry about. You letting them do all that. You'll let yes. them do all that work. And you're literally coming in at the best point where everyone's happy. Everyone's, everyone's done the deal. Like, <laughs> so the, and that's the import, that is the importance. It's probably overlooked of what the service providers do because all that work's gone into finding a candidate, placing them, getting them on site. You pass that to a service provider that doesn't get them paid in the first week and they walk yeah. off site, it's very quickly undone. Um, yeah. I've probably under, undersold the industry there. There's a lot in the background around 
how you have to be from a legislation perspective, how you have to operate from a service perspective. The relationship element, yeah, it's, I probably made it sound easy, but it's an easier sell than what the recruiter would have to do to get someone. But you are side. also very dependent on the recruiters doing their job, aren't you? If recruiters 100%. don't do well, you're, you're not doing well. So you, That's it. you must, did you, like you said, how did you work out that? I need a hundred recruiters. Was that was that just trial and error, or is there is there is a method behind that number? I'd like to tell you that there was, you know, some magical science behind it. But you'd set a target, you'd have conversations yeah. with recruiters, you'd understand what kind of volumes they're placing, and that would get you there. And if you're short, you need to go and find new relationships. And and yeah. that's where every year you set your forecast. You wanted to grow by a thousand contracts as you look at your current agency base have we got enough in there to support that growth and if not can we squeeze a bit more out of them or do we need to fill the hopper with some new agencies and that's the way we forecast every year and you know it is as i said it's a, a big relationship play it's a big service play but you're looking at contract volume each and year. is there any sectors specifically that you lean on in not recruit within recruitment like is it like trades and labor, is it? Yeah, so healthcare is just certain markets you would. Each provider will each provider will have the niche. So some will specialize in education. They do really well at that. Some will be construction focused. We always found that construction, rail, and engineering were just our bread and butter, mm. um, because of the type of people that you're working with, because of the volumes, and you set yourself up for that kind of that volume play. You know, we might register 500 guys in a week, 500 girls in a week. They might be gone in two or three weeks because they're only on short-term contracts, whereas some other providers might sell on IT contractors that are going to stay for six months. Yeah, but we just found our niche in kind of engineering, rail, uh, and construction. Was that is that a real challenge then in terms of the growth? You got all these new people coming in, but then the amount of turnover people leaving must be like managing yeah, so that you, balance. It's, it's, be... The churn, the churn's always uh, every provider would say the churn's always the challenge. It's how do you try and get them coming back on the next contract how do you remind them that you are their employer so you know come back to us for your next assignment but as you know a recruiter will say well they moved to a different agency that recruiter's got a relationship somewhere else they're gone you know they've yeah. gone to someone else so that that churn was always um yeah at the front of your mind and that's why you've just got to get the volume to keep plugging that gap and keep growing so more in when it comes to that. cash as well like do, that must have been a concern so like because you, you've got other cash to pay everyone that yeah, you must be taking on a hell of a lot of debt to to get going, especially in the early days. Yeah, in the early well, that's where kind of the the JV came from in the early days. It was to plug that the initial kind of um, requirements. A lot of the agencies we'd work with were personal relationships. So you'd say, look, it's paid when paid. You pay us, we pay the contractors. There's no there's no credit option. As you start to grow, credit becomes a question asked by a lot of agencies. You pay the contractors next week. I'll pay you in thirty days. Um. And there's no privilege for that. You don't charge them any different. You know, you no. just kind of have to do it because that's the way the world is. You're a bit bigger. But yeah, umbrellas are typically quite cash rich because you've got a lot of cash coming in the door. You sit on the VAT, pays you earn an NI. Obviously, it's paid out to the revenue, but it's there um, in your cash reserves. So yeah, they are quite quite cash rich companies, but you have to have an eye on cash all the time. Yeah. yeah. What was your biggest challenge in those early days for Walker Smith? And if you go back, what would you say? Where was the hairy moments where you think you know it nearly fell apart or things were going wrong? That I mean that first that first board meeting when you've sat there and you've done 80 quid GP and you spent 72 grand, you do question, 
shit, is this is this going to work? Is it the right decision? Um, but you've just got to keep keep plugging away. I think the biggest challenge probably came a couple of years in when we had 10 staff, and, and people will resonate with this. When you've got four or five staff in an office working closely with the directors, they feel part of the family. Yeah. When you get to 10 staff and there's the next phase of that business growth, they either want to go on that journey with you or they fall out of the process because it's just not the company that they started with. Yeah. So probably that first phase of growth was taking it from 10 to 20 to 50 staff. We had to do a lot of work on the vision and values about who we were, about how we wanted to be internally and externally, what we wanted to be perceived as. So we brought somebody in to, to do that work with us, which was, which was huge, but we lost some good people along the way that just didn't want to go on that growth journey with us because it was right. always set up as a buy, build, sell, um, capital sale play. Yeah. And that's fast growth. That's fast pace. That's high volume, high energy. And yeah, I think some people want to go on that journey and some people don't. That, what, that were you, what were you like in terms of, because I can get a vibe from you that you'd have been brilliant at the sales side. I can tell you would have been so good at that, going out and buying drinks. And we've done it. We've been out at Christmas. It was great fun, <laughs> right? What What were you like? Because I think that was always my strength. But then the bit that I've always struggled with, that I'm develop still developing, is my people management side, which, yeah, you know, if you're a sales director and you're building a sales function, it's not all about you. It's about evolving other people. And how, how did you find your own development into that role? And, and how, yeah. Um, a bit more about that. Yeah, it's it's tough. It's tough because as a, it's a similar thing to recruitment. As a top biller, I don't necessarily want to take them off the off the desk and get them managing people because it's not necessarily in their psyche. It's not necessarily yeah. their strong point. Um, yeah, I, I struggled with it. And if any of my team are listening over the years, um, they'll say that yeah, it was great lead, great leading from the front, but some of the the gaps around skills knowledges structure training development training keeping them to that structure probably a bit too lenient because the management side of things the thought of micromanaging just isn't in my isn't in my dna so i would always lead from the front i would always be top pillar i'd always be bringing the sales in and they'd get support but ultimately we addressed that so we brought in a sales manager to 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 Mm. look after look after the team because yeah it is probably one of my weak points at what point do you do that? Do you think for anyone who's listening, what point do you do? You, what's the symptoms or the size that means that you probably should? If you're the founder and you're not the best at this, when do you when do you start investing in someone else to look after? I think team? I think there's a balance of when it starts to affect your own sales. So hmm. if you're taken from day to day selling, driving the business, and being seen as that that person leading the business from from a sales perspective. If you're spending two days a week managing a team and not getting the right result out of them, and that is impacting results from a GP numbers perspective, it makes perfect sense to to plug that that gap, yeah. take the two days back, grow it, and, and support the team. I don't necessarily think there's a number of people you need in your team to make that you know the right time, but we did it when we had four external guys. So we had four external guys. I was trying to manage them and trying to sell them. We thought, actually, somebody needs to come in now and, and harness. The- how big How big was the business at that point? How many staff was in the business at total? Um, probably had 40 staff, a 
across London and Manchester. That's, and that's the big difference between what you do and what, say, Hoxo does compared to our client base is we're not all salespeople, are we? Like my business is 40 staff and it's there's three of us in sales and the rest are doing the doing the work, right? And you would have been the yeah. same. You have all these people doing customer success in operations and there's only a handful of you at the front. That's which it. Is, recruiters is everyone's on the front and there's and a handful at the back. It's totally that's, that's a big challenge because obviously you want to incentivize and motivate a sales team, but you've got to remember that they're sat in an office with payroll teams and customer care teams who aren't incentivized in the same way, oh. but you're trying to create a culture of high growth sales. So that was always a challenge. I always remember going into my agency and thinking this is mega because the ringing bells, it's wild, yeah. there's deals being done. And I want to try and implement some of that, but I can't because it's a service business. So yeah. that, that was, that was always a challenge. Um, yeah. But yeah, I tried to take a few of the things that I saw in my agencies and uh, <laughs> not all of so them, talk, of course. <laughs> so talk, talk us through that initial plan to then start expanding. We, you, you touched on it before, but you, you started going, well, we we think through acquisition, we're going to end up growing quicker. What, what yeah, yeah. Where was how did that conversation evolve? That's it. So um, first small acquisition was to simply plug a gap in the in the forecast so there was a small umbrella 300 contractors that was for sale that we could acquire take the contractor book plug it into ours uh, and move forward so that you was the first keep, do you keep any of the people or not uh, a couple yeah but it was only a small business they only had three or four um yeah. the director exited and we kept a couple of the couple of the payroll people um, and naturally over time that, that that falls away then we looked at buying in expertise so where we had gaps we wanted to provide an international offering Tried to do it ourselves, um, didn't quite work. So we went and acquired an international payroll company. Um, we then thought we've got an accountancy offering, but it's not great. So we went and acquired a big accountancy provider in London. So what we did is we, we, we acquired in skills uh, and obviously volume with it, but we, we plugged gaps in our skill sets and our uh, service offerings with more established, more experienced companies right. um, that can get you towards the end goal quicker achieve that better multiple, but also their experience, they're embedded in what they do. So instead of you trying to start it yourself, build a team, prove your service levels, you just buy in that expertise and you buy in that proven track track record. So yeah. Yeah, they were the two main ones. We bought a big accounts provider, a big international provider. So then we had the, the kind of full scope of offering. You had <laughs> umbrella, CIS, international accountancy. Um, so we what was that like? What was that process like to go through? How how heavily involved were you in the in the acquisitions? I was always involved in in every acquisition in terms of meeting the people, but we we had an, an M and A director. So Steve from his Hamilton Bradshaw background was our M and A guy. So he would find the deals, negotiate the deal, close the deal. But along the way, you have to meet their staff, and you have to get them bought into the next phase of of their journey because if they join the group. They want to know what mean what that means for them. Is there is there more opportunity? What's the culture fit? How do we all piece together as as one group? Um, so that was where I would come in and use the kind of personal approach, the relationship skills that I've got, and sit with with members of of the company we were buying, and try and kind of give them an insight into what we we're all about. Mm. But the the nitty gritty, getting into the numbers, closing the deal, the legal side, yes, yeah, Stephen Stephen Matt would take care of that. And how did you find the integration of those bigger companies where it's not, you know, you're not just buying a contract, but you're actually taking the expertise. What was it like from a cultural 
integration perspective? We learned a lot along the way. I think that the biggest <clears throat> learning was if you acquire a company, so you've got your own company, you walk a smith, then you acquire a company um, which does international, then you acquire an accountancy provider. To go and leverage that, that cross-sell, to go into a business and be able to say, we do everything, but that company does that and that company does that and we do this, it's very messy. So we really didn't nail the cross-sell for a good few years because we were all separate brands. And that's where the worker group came from. So right. in time, we consolidated and we named everything worker this, worker that, worker that. So it was dead easy for the sales team to go in. But because they were all in different locations, we had London, we had Manchester, uh, we had Leeds. You know, we, we learned that, and COVID helped this, the power of getting everybody together over a Zoom or a Teams once a month and giving a company briefing and making sure that everybody knows other people within the business and other people within the, the businesses have opportunities to talk and tell the wider group what they're all about. That massively helped. And then doing a few events each year to get everybody together so that they feel part of, of one <clears> business. I think in the early days, we didn't do that. We let everybody kind of run on their own. So they were standalone businesses and they would run and nobody really talked. And I don't think you can be a true group until you properly integrate everybody under one yeah. under one banner. Um, so yeah, we learned <clears> a lot away with that. What about in terms of sales? Because they did they have sales teams and you had a sales team and yeah, they, they'd all have they'd all have their own sales teams. But how did those you, sales teams challenging? Yeah, it was. Those sales teams would have their own product lines that they were selling. So you'd go in and understand, right, if you're selling to the recruitment market that product, what's to stop you going and talking about the rest of the products that the group sells? But what you'd find is they were so focused on what they're selling mm -hmm. that they're not really bothered about the rest of the group because they're, they're making commission on what they're, they're doing. Their own number, yeah. yeah, it's like, I don't know how you'd position it in recruitment. You've got a DevOps recruit, contract recruiter and you go and buy an engineering agency and you go, right, well, is there any synergies there between the clients? Can we start passing it across? Well, no, I, I do DevOps. It's contract that. and perm as well. I mean, I used to do the exact same market as my perm team and we'd do the same candidates and clients, but one was perm, one was contract. And you'd have to force a meeting with perm and contract yeah, yeah. together because otherwise perm would never even ask for a contract role and we didn't give a shit about the perm jobs. So it was like, we'd That's always- probably the best comparison. We'd always, we'd always tag team up and it worked really well because we'd be like, look, we have Enquist, it's Anthony, I'm Sean, we've got perm contract, we do all these things. And together you will look a more complete solution anyway. Because, But I'm asking out of interest based on my own business as well, because we have different service lines that are to the same client base. And I do find it difficult to, do you, like, did you go down a route where like everyone sold individually and then, or did you merge everyone yeah. to selling everything? Like, how do you make sure there is that like, cross-selling opportunity across the, because they're all the same customers. They are. We, we did it in three phases, really. The first was right. consolidation, so everything became worker group. So you became yeah. worker international, worker accountancy, worker umbrella, um, yeah. worker solutions, which was the back office piece. So everybody, the messaging's clear. And obviously, you get all of your literature in line so that if somebody lands on your website or they've got a document, they can see that you do everything. Then obviously, you've got the upskilling phase of going through the training with all the teams and giving them enough insight to be able to have a conversation, but not necessarily making them an expert because that yeah. would just be overkill. And then just building a lead funnel so that the leads can be channeled into the right teams. So whether that's a URL where there's a drop down and the lead can go on and it goes to someone who can close it. They can choose what 
what they, they want to talk the about is yeah what they want to talk about but yeah just a lot of kind of fact finding documents <clears throat> uh, with with your clients um and making sure that yeah that the client knew you did it so you were talking about it through social media you were talking about it in every meeting becoming that kind of one-stop shop but not making the sales guys try and sell everything in detail just making sure that they can reference it. They Would they nothing. still pass it across to the experts? They still so pass it across yeah. to the experts to sign it up. So you become a lead funnel as a sales team, really, but making sure that it's captured properly. Um, mm. Yeah, you can you can be in danger of confusing your sales team and confusing the sell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen that in a, in recruitment firms. I've seen it in my own business. It's especially when you it's the same customers. I think when the yeah. customer base are completely different and you've got service lines to different sectors, it's, it's it kind of, they do run independently. It's okay. But when you've got the same yeah. client name and you're selling different services, you're all actually ringing the same people and it's a bit crossover and it could be, a, did you ever have that? Where like, yeah, yeah, we did. We did. We did. Salespeople yeah. phoning the same clients and pissing them off. And yeah. And I think this is the beauty of where your data uh, comes in, isn't it? If people are using the CRM properly, you're all right. But, as we know, salespeople don't always use CRMs properly. Um, the other thing just on that is you are always going to get people that want to do it and all people that don't want to do it. And I think it's the people that want to stay in their own lane and do what they do, you can't change them. We tried to change people and it didn't work and they just go back to type. And that's fine. Like If that's what they're great at, let them plow that line. If wow. you've got people that want to learn more and want to cross-sell and want to sell different products, encourage them to do so and incentivize them to do so because they'll want to do it for their own growth but you will get people in there that just want to go and do their own thing and that's there's no problem with that i used to really hate it about everybody needs to be able to cross out everybody want i want them doing this but then in the end i was like i'm just going to relax and you're great at what you do just keep doing it there's, there's no <laughs> so do you think there's an element there in, and this is across all business but definitely in the sales side is like accepting that things are not always they're not going to be perfect like they're never going to be like you've scaled and exited and walked away and i bet it wasn't perfect right it's no, not, not perfect because we all want this perfect business where everything's in lines and sales are happening perfectly every sector it's kind of not like no business is built that way i don't My think I've ever, i don't think i've ever been into a recruitment agency that cross sell perfectly that the contracts and perm teams working hand in hand everything's spot on it's just it doesn't happen because we're people at the end of the day aren't we and Everybody is different. You know, if you could cut the top of everyone's head off and look inside and see what they're thinking, it'd be wonderful, but you can't. So, yeah, I think you have to get to a level of acceptance that you can do what you can do and you can make your messaging as slick as possible and cut out as much of the noise. But ultimately, it's never going to be perfect. No, no. Yeah. Well, um, so, so you've got these three business units now and you're ramping up the the branding's done the sales it's getting there it's not perfect but it's moving how did it evolve into the exit i know you said it this it was already always going to be a, a scale and exit play but yeah. what how did it when when did you know you were probably at a point where it wasn't about just keep acquiring more and more it was about or how many more did you acquire before you got to that point because we, we did a couple more. yeah we did a couple more so we did six acquisitions in total and a couple of joint ventures with people to launch mm -hmm. services in, in our group so we knew we couldn't add any more product lines. What's the difference between a joint venture and an acquisition for people that don't know? Uh, an acquisition is, in our case, we just go and buy their business and their people yeah. and their contractors and, and bring it into the group. A joint venture is where we would back someone to set up a new service in our in our company. So mm -hmm. where we didn't have a service line or a skill set, 
we'd bring someone in and go 50-50 with them or yeah. whatever that split looked like. And we would provide the capital at the start. Um, we would provide central services for them. So marketing, finance, um, accounting, customer care, whatever it is they need for them to just go and grow that business. Um, and a bit like you were, did in that first, in, like you did in that first one without the equity play. Yeah, that's it. Exactly, that's it. Yeah. So you provide a central function. I know a lot of recruitment groups that yeah, of course uh, do that. They, they provide a central platform and back top billers in different sectors. Yeah, yeah. very similar to that. Just a, a bit of a partnership. So that that kind of brought us to yeah. We had we had a, a <laughs> it's a bit wanky, but we had a sheet on the wall with twenty twenty vision on, and the twenty twenty vision from sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty was exit at, at twenty twenty. Now, is this what everyone knew, or was this just the board knew? Um, senior management knew, and I think that I think that most of the team knew we were on an aggressive plan to sell. They probably just didn't realise it would happen so quickly. Um, so yeah, twenty twenty, uh, COVID hit. COVID hit twenty twenty. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> Let's not forget that one. He was definitely definitely then. Were you in so a position we, before COVID that you thought it would be time to get? Yeah, we were, we were right. We were doing the right level of um, GP. We were doing the right EBIT number. We had every service line in place. Systems were right. Customer reviews were great. So we thought if we were going to go run the right trajectory, now would be the, now would be the time. Um, and we had a bit of interest, but then we had a firm a firm interest from a big provider in our space, um, which we played on. You know, we 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 met a few times. We talked about it. And then, yeah, COVID hit and we did the, the whole acquisition over Zoom. So everything, all the legal meetings, all of the um, conversations about numbers, where you're at, how you're tracking, in the main, bar a couple of meetings was done over Zoom. What about we the actual business, though? Because you're going into a pandemic thinking, right, we're this size, we've got this much money, GP, all of that. And then surely you must have took a hit yeah, financially and contractor numbers must have slid off a cliff, no? Yeah, we did contractor numbers dropped by up to 70% at one stage. So during COVID, we lost kind of 70% of our book that we were paying because no one was out working. So Is our, that not frightening the shit out of you though and think yeah, it's all going to come down? <laughs> it did because the other thing as an umbrella is you're the employer. So furlough was a huge part of it. The fact that there was yeah. something for these contractors that wasn't working and that that was a massive, uh, massive and You part. had to go out and furlough... We had, to, out we, had to, on their behalf. we had to pay the furlough on their behalf and then claim it yeah. back. So, you know, you think you're doing that for a couple of thousand people. It's a big old task and not make, you can't charge any margin on that. Furlough. No, so, no, no. So yeah, contractor numbers dropped by 70%. We got back in, in July when people could go back to the office. We looked at where we were at. We had to sharpen the pencil a bit. We'd probably got a little bit, um, not ahead of ourselves, but we were probably carrying staff and spending on things that we didn't need to do so how many people are in the business at this point 80 right About 80 people in the business um so yeah we had to sharpen the pencil we had to sharpen up and look at where we could make some savings not a nice not a nice period for anyone i know everybody would be in the same boat but yeah, yeah we, we managed to, to 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 get those contractors back so when everyone started working again they came back so numbers went back up to where they were pre-COVID, um, we'd cut some fat, so we were more profitable. We we're actually more profitable post-COVID than we were pre. I bet, yeah. Um, and then 
yeah, we had we had a target GP number, we had a target EBIT number that if we got to, it was the right time to start talking to people. We could confidently sit in front of people and get the number that we wanted to achieve. Um, and yeah, we garnered some interest. We took that further, and then that how did you do further. that? Did you go via a broker or anything? Did you go out and speak? To we them? did it ourselves. So we did it ourselves through through personal relationships, through people really? we knew in the industry, through Steve's connections, obviously on the M and A side. Um, and yeah, we, we went through that process, which took 15 months, I'd say, 14, wow. 14 15 months. Um, and ultimately, yeah, we, we sold the group in its entirety in March 21. So just coming up to two years ago now. To take me back to that moment that you found out it was done. <laughs> it, was, it should have been done a few times, but with anything with lawyers being done over Zoom just takes that little bit longer. So you think it's it's going to happen. You think it's the money's going to land and it'll all be done. And you, you, you know, you're left waiting for another month or something. But yeah, I remember, I remember where I was vividly. I was just sat on the sofa at my, my wife's mum's house and got the email through, check your banks, the money's landed. And yeah, you, you look at your bank and smile a little bit and then think, shit, kind of what, <laughs> what do you do now? Like, what next? And well, that's it, the thing. Let's just get into that because people, obviously, most people listen to the show have aspirations of going through what you've done. Like, in their own way, they want to sell something. I want it. I mean, do I want to sell? I don't know if I'm that obsessed with the sale, but I think the the process sounds like something I'd want to achieve. You know, yeah. the money would be. I'd love to see a bank balance of of X in my personal account. That means I'm, you know classed as a, as a as a very wealthy person i'm sure i would but i'm not focused on it obsessed by it um but you must have, when you know you're going through it it takes 14 months that must have been how like front and center every day pretty much of your brain like you must be yeah, thinking about all of that it is front and center there's, there's a couple of things that go through your mind because just to caveat that i obviously still work um as a consultant for the company that, that bought us mm. so crest yeah Press Plus, which is uh, an umbrella and CIS provider, I still um, work with them. So yeah. you've got an earnout period post that, which you focused on making sure that the business you sell is have, has a legacy, is going to still be there for the buying company. So you want to make mm. sure your clients are secured, your contractors are secured. You've got to keep your staff motivated during that period as well, because they know there's something happening, um, which is difficult, and make sure that you keep your service levels and people don't jump ship. Because they don't know what it means. So did you them. get a, did you get an initial payment and then you stayed yeah. in and did an earnout? So when you said yeah. you're on the sofa, was that the earnout or the initial payment? That was the initial payment. Not I was sat on the sofa, I was still working. Um, yeah, I was just sat on the sofa. So yeah, yeah that, that, that was the initial payment, and then there was a year, a year, a year kind right. of earnout post that where you're in the business, you're handling the transition because your contractors are ultimately going to be moved to another company. So you want to make sure that goes well for the contractors mm -hmm. and for your relationships, and then. Ultimately, because there is an earnout, you want to hit your targets. You know, you want to perform, work hard, and and hit the targets that are set. To, did you find get... it was a different level of motivation, or did, did anything change in that year? It's a it's a different feeling, I suppose, because you know that it's probably not kind of say not forever, but you know that it's a period of of retention and growth. It's like a Whereas project. When, isn't it? Like a project, yeah, when you're on that hamster wheel of fast growth for yourself and you want to grow as quickly as you can, you're just in it and that's, you know, you're focused on on that. It's different to making sure that you're handing over a business which is in a great place, but ultimately, you know, you want to keep growing 
And you've got to communicate to your clients that something's happening as well. So naturally within there, you've got difficult conversations around, well, what does it mean for me in the future? Um, so it is a different period. But And how did your team take it? Because they obviously have gone on that journey with you, but they're not necessarily leaving in 12 months. Like, Or were they? What, what was the situation for them? No, so everybody was, everyone was offered roles in the in the company that, that bought us. Naturally, some people decided that. So we had people that had been with us from the start, you know, they decided that I've been on the journey, I've had a great time, I'm going to go and do something else. So mm-hmm. um, some people do that. Some people move across and transition across. So within the group, a number of the staffs still provide the services for the, for the businesses that were bought. So they stay uh, and some people go and do their own thing. You know, we yeah. had people do all sorts, move to Dubai, go and do something, totally new sectors. So some people see it as, I've had a great time. I'm going to go and try something new. Some Was that hard take- though? Because you've got that year still and you yeah, can see some people's heads turning. Were you like... Yeah, it is. It's, diff- it's a really difficult year because you're trying to motivate people to go out and sell and have those conversations with, with a level of uncertainty and no salesperson likes uncertainty or change. So that's yeah. the conundrum of managing sales versus managing change. So I'd always be aware if you, if you are coming to exit with a uh, an earn out, you've got that that challenge of managing performance against uncertainty and, and change. What's any any advice for people if they're trying to do that? What can you be open? How can you mitigate? Yeah, just I'd be open, be open with people. I don't think that teams react well if you try and pull the wool over their eyes. I think what, what mm. we both did, both the buying company and, and ourselves, was be transparent, be clear, give timelines. Do you know what I mean to so say these things are happening at, the, at these times? Um, and if there's opportunity for growth, let them know. And if there's not, and it looks like it isn't going to work, just just be open. Don't lead people down the path because it will naturally just get to its end, end cause anyway. Yeah, yeah. So in that year... What's your life like? Because you you got a fifteen month old. You said now yeah, yeah. is it fifteen month old? So are you going through? Are you are you going through the earn out whilst pregnant? Is that is that right? <laughs> so or... was, we, it, there was basically the business sale. We got married. <laughs> your life must be fucking. Nuts. We had a baby. Um, we tried to move house, but that fell through. Yeah, and sounds got, like my life in the last year. Exactly, you've got the earn out as well. So it's it's carnage. It's it's just carnage. And then you know you transition into a new company to so the one that bought us you transition into there and ultimately you don't take a minute to stop you don't take a minute to stop you just head down everything's going on around you but you're so caught up in it and then it kind of reaches a point it just reaches a point where you think right where am i at now like what 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 am i like <laughs> do i need to reinvent myself do i need so to... what happened to the when the earn out tell us about how the earn out came to a came to fruition and it, you genuinely did leave the business what was that talk us yeah so story left the business in, in the guise that i was in so yeah the, the earn out the earn out ends and there's an option you can either go which matt and steve did they went or you can stay on in in one of the companies within the group so i stayed on request became their sales mm-hmm. director and um, made sure that the clients that moved across from from worker are looked after and retained and crest did a brilliant job of that and um, did that for a year until december and then, yeah, spoke to the guys and said, look, I'll, I'll stay involved. But ultimately, um, it's been a, a whirlwind kind of 15 years of head down, graft, just had a baby, haven't had a minute to really sit down and think, what does the next chapter look like? Um, 
so yeah it was a bit of a realization around christmas time to think how old are you now 35 yes yeah, so you're younger than me for to have achieved all that by 35 like you say 15 since you were 19 20 you've been on that hamster wheel yeah in the same industry doing the same thing yeah. um and you do need to sit down and go right what what is the next chapter do i continue in this industry but that has its challenges because obviously you're not in charge of the business anymore. You know, it's not your business. You can't make all Unless you start another one. Which we can't. So, and we wouldn't. Yeah. So yeah. just let's pull out there. Um, yeah. <laughs> Have you got a period of time you wouldn't, yeah, you've got a non-compete on. Yeah. yeah. So you, for... you get a non-compete period, which, yeah. um, you know, you, you can't do anything in. But, but genuinely, I wouldn't have the appetite to go back into this industry in the future and ever, no. and ever set one up. It is, it's, it's a tough industry and, and um, you know, all the, like, all the companies in there doing it at the moment are established and, and doing great jobs. So but, once you finished up on a break, what, what was that like? What did you do? Uh, I think the cha- I think it's, it's lonely, if I'm honest, because you're in an office of 100 people, you know, you're the main man, you've got people around you, there's an atmosphere. And the next day you sat at home on your sofa and the wife and kid have left the house and you're like, right, what, what, what is my purpose now? Like, what, what am I all about? Have I, have I lost my purpose? Do I need to refine, re, redefine myself? Do I need to find myself? Like there is a period that the money doesn't matter because it Did you not want to have like a week or two or a month to just like go to watch United play and just doing things that like have nothing yeah, to do I with did, work. And... I did that, you know, just had, had, we had the honeymoon, which we put off for years. So we had yeah. the honeymoon in, in January, there's some thinking time. I'd obviously had um, Christmas, so I'd had that time to think. But you don't find yourself and you don't find your purpose in a few weeks or a few months. You're always wrangling with what, what should I be doing? What should I be doing with the money? What should I be doing with my day-to-day? How do I find structure again? Because I don't have an office to go to day Just having money in the bank like a large sum of money in the bank almost become a bit of a burden that you're like, yes. I don't want to burn it. I don't want to. Yeah. I, I found, so I don't know about other people that I'm not materialistic. So I've not going to bought a watch. I've got a car with hundred thousand miles on the drive. I've not bought a bigger house. Um, I'm never, I'm one about experiences and having people Same. around me. And I think I need people around me. And what happens is you close the office doors, you go and work obviously for another business. And then you sat at home and you think, shit, it's lonely. It, it can be lonely at times, you know, being really transparent. You're like, yeah. right, I need to, I need to work out what this next chapter. So how long did, because this was last year, wasn't it? The start of last year it's, you were. Yes. Yeah, start of last year I was, I was in, you know, I was in, I was in a crest full time and I was. Head so down. when did you stop? Was it end of the end of the year just gone or the, the year before? Stopped, end of the year just gone. Right. So December, December. Stop full time. So stop full time yeah. in, in December. Um, and, yeah, you, you need to take a little bit of time to to look but at you yourself. You haven't really like you've, you're talking February, and you're already like you. You know, I know what you're up to, right? You, you're building. You want to build something else. You want to do something else. So you've you've had a little break, but you must be thinking. You just yeah, you got ants in your pants. Like staying it's at home. Purpose. Or just... It is it, right. purpose for me, and I think that you know a lot of people, if they come to exit, I would encourage people to think about. Don't think about the money. Think about what happens after. Like if you're in your business and you love it love the people as soon as you sell and you're out you there will be a time where you sit there unless you've got loads of millions where you can go and live abroad and play golf every day that's great yeah but if it's a nice figure 
then there will become anxieties. You'll be thinking about how to invest it. Am I making the right decisions? If your income stops, you're just watching it go backwards. So, yeah. you know, you've got that that kind of um, conundrum to think about. Now, this might sound ridiculous to people and think, what, what are you moaning about? You've just sold your business. And I'm not. It is, it's, it's a nice, nice position. But the intrinsic things around purpose and being around people and making a difference each day, kind of need to find that again. Do you, the spending the money though, which I don't care if you've got a million or a hundred grand or whatever, when you're spending money without money coming in, it feels different. Like it's not the same feeling when money's coming in every month and you're spending it, like, you, you know, the next month's more, more's coming in. So it's like, you know, it, it kind of, whereas it, when you sat on a pot without a new income stops or slows down, yeah, yeah, it will feel that it definitely does feel so. You need an, I don't know, I, I don't think I'd ever want to completely stop work, and no. I wouldn't want to sit on a pot and be like, watch it. Like you said, I probably wouldn't well, analyze it. I think it'll just go like it, it yeah. will just disappear, whether it's five years, 10 years, it will go. Yeah, if you don't do something with it. Um, so yeah, there is there is that element, and income is obviously important because you spend to your habits, don't you? You know, you earn a certain yeah. amount, you spend it really, unless you're a great saver. Recruiters will yeah. know if you get a massive paycheck, then you know you, you're going to go and you're going to go out and have a good night or go on holiday yeah. or whatever else. So, yeah, I think income's important. It's about kind of the next the next phase. So, tell us what you've actually planned to do. What what is the next phase for you? Because it is yeah, different. So, like you mentioned, property. So, how's it all come about? Yeah, so property is something that I've I've been kind of keen and focused on for a few years now. So, I've known a chap many New Year's Eve party. We've never really talked about what we did got reintroduced to him a couple of years ago by a friend who said there's a couple of lads who are in property they're sourcing deals for people they're doing their own kind of flips and refurbs and that kind of stuff but they've run out of money and I know you've just sold your business do you want to have a conversation so it started as if do you want to fund a couple of projects for us and get an eight percent return so I was like yeah I'll, I'll do that it gives me a nice return but then it was a further conversation of actually if I put a bit more in, why don't we make this a, a real company? And, you know, we'll, we'll run it as a company. We'll set up a marketing department. We'll um, have a finance team. We'll do more deals. We'll sell more deals and we'll um, raise more finance ultimately. So, yeah, we have a, a company, Northwest Property Investments, which um, two arms to it. We source properties for investors, people who want to get into the market but don't really know how to find a deal off market. So not through right move, direct to sellers. And yeah, yeah. within that, we can do the construction work, the build phase, the renovations, and then we build our own portfolio. So we've we've started acquiring stuff on the Fylde Coast, so Blackpool, Poulton, Lytham, that kind of area. Um, a few old hotels in Blackpool that were turning into B and Bs, uh, Airbnbs. Some absolute horror shows that you see around there. But you're picking them up for like thirty-five grand for a nine-bedroom hotel. Yeah. So can't can't deal with the deals. And yeah, that, that is kind of um, the, the focus at the moment. So I think my attention, because of the network and because of who I've dealt with in the past in the recruitment space, recruiters are generally, quite generalistic, but quite time poor, money rich in, in mm -hmm. certain certain um, elements and aren't always the best. I know this from my relationship with recruiters, aren't always the best for managing the money. So my natural thought within the property business was I'm not a builder. I'm not a tradesman, but I am a networker and I'm a relationship builder and people trust me in my, in my network. So yeah, my, my role now within that business is to 
help the recruitment sector, help recruiters who've got some money lying around, put it to work really with, with a fixed return, with some securities over the properties, with, with personal guarantees. Um, and ultimately- So for example, if, if, if you know, I've got 100,000 sat there, let's say, and I'm it's, it's literally going down with inflation. Yeah. What could you do for it? What, give us an example of how that would translate for someone. Well, we would we would have found a property that we, we might want to keep ourselves and it might be yeah. 80 grand cash purchase and it might need 20 grand spending on it. Let's round the numbers up for ease. Now mm-hmm. we can either put 25% in ourselves and take a bridging loan for the, for the rest of it, of which you pay higher interest rates, do the work, put it on a mortgage in the future, take the money back and... Um, pay the bridging loan back. An easier thing for us to do is, is say to a private investor, you give us that 100 grand, we'll buy the house, we'll do the work with it. You will get security over the house. If anything went wrong, you've got the first charge, like a mortgage company would have a first charge. What does the first mortgage. charge mean? Does that mean they, they own you it? Their they first, first, first right on the house, really. So you've got the charge over the house, the first charge over the house. So mortgage companies will have first charge over your house. So if anything yeah. went wrong, they can come and repossess it. So that's kind yeah. of the security that we'd offer. Um, and we would offer a fixed return every month um, on that on that money. So we would say for that 100 grand, we'll pay you 8% over the year. So you're going to get 9,600 back either at the end of the year, or we can pay you monthly, but you're making something on that money rather than that 100 grand next year being worth 97 grand because yeah. of inflation has gone backwards. So I think I tried a few things when I sold the business. I tried to invest in stock market, tried to invest with a uh, you know, a wealth manager and it went backwards, it, you know, it didn't make any money. I don't know about crypto. I don't know about anything else. But what I do know is properties only ever going in one direction. It's only going up. And because you get the securities over it, that was where I first started investing my money. And it was mm-hmm. a return each month on some money that I had sat around which has now just developed into, you know, an actual business that, that I'm involved in. So yeah. It's- so for you, for you, it's building the asset, the portfolio, the rental re- recurring revenues, and for and also you, you know, you're able to work with people in the market, recruitment owners, recruitment leaders, people with cash, yeah, and give them a, a viable investment strategy. Right? Give them a viable think- investment strategy. That's it. And you know, everyone knows they need to invest their money, but most people, like you say, too busy. I was, I'm the same. I avoid crypto now because I got burnt on it years ago, even though yeah. I went, the way I did it was, I shouldn't have done it. I went with a fund manager and it was, it was terrible. Um, you know, property is that one that everyone, everyone buys houses. Everyone knows it's really relatively safe. Relatively nothing's secure. safe, nothing's safe, but it, you know, it's the best, probably the best asset class you can invest in. That's going to be here in the next 50 years for sure. Absolutely. Um, that's it. And that's why I think you, everything you've just described, I don't know about the other markets, but we know that mm. property is a good is a good asset class. So yeah, that's what it's that's what it's honed honed into now. And um So yeah, if someone t- wants to find out more, what do they need to do? Is it is there a website or is it just message you on yeah, LinkedIn? So that's the best? Go through go through my LinkedIn, DM me. Um we do have a website, northwestpropertyinvestments.com, where you can yeah. see a little bit more yeah. about the projects that we've got. But yeah, just drop me a DM. Um, I'm going to start posting regularly on LinkedIn about what we're doing and mm. start to build that trust in the network that, you know, we know what we're doing, talk a little bit more about the potential opportunities. But yeah, just, yeah. just get in touch. A lot of people will probably still have my mobile. It's not changed. Um, yeah. So yeah, And just- if anyone's just wants to talk about business growth and exit, because look, I know you didn't run a recruitment firm, but 
it, there's a lot of similarities, a lot of synergies there. People maybe want to talk about, you know, integrating teams, you know, managing earnouts, that kind of stuff. Are you open for a chat with people just to Absolutely. give them some time? Yeah, any, anything. And yeah, managing the contractors because I'm still involved in that space without diluting myself too much. But yeah, I'm mm. open to any kind of conversations. Um, yeah, I think it's the network, it's the sector that I've provided services for for so long. You know, I'll continue to do it in whatever guise. Amazing. Mike, thanks so much, mate. You're an absolute legend. I, uh, I've i loved the conversations we've had together. I love I love the story. I think, you know, it's inspirational. It's real. It's genuine. You're not, you're not talking bullshit and making people feel like, you know, they've got to do X. It's, it's genuine real life. And, and I like the fact you're already onto something else that's trying to benefit the same people that you've worked with. So yeah. good on you, mate. I wish you the Thank best of luck. I know you'll do well. And if anyone is listening, I hope they do reach out. Top man. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Appreciate it. Right. Cheers, That's man. been recorded. Um,